Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, Jacob and I chat with a few people about Formula One coming to Las Vegas next year. The fastest motorsport will be taking place on the Strip November 2023, and we look at how this fits into the city's burgeoning sports landscape. Afterward, reporter Rocio Hernandez comes on the show to talk about violence in schools and how districts are looking to curb the growing problem. At the end of the show, I'm joined by our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, to chat about proposals to move Nevada to an earlier spot in the presidential nominating contest. Joey, what is this music? <laughs> well, um, unfortunately, we <laughs> we couldn't license the official Formula One theme song, uh, which is amazing, by the way. Um, so this is the cl- <laughs> unfortunately the closest thing I could find. <laughs> I see. Okay, well, uh, I will recommend everyone listening to this do go out and immediately listen to the Formula One theme song. But short of that, Joey, Formula One is coming to Las Vegas for the first time since 1982. And because of that, we have a lot to talk about. Well, I, I know we have a lot to talk about because, Jacob, you are actually a huge F1 fan. Uh, so, I mean, to start off, what, is this, what does this mean to you for Formula One to be coming to Vegas? Joey, let me tell you, as someone who's been a fan since the year 2016, this is literally incomprehensible to me. I could not in my wildest <laughs> dreams have imagined this moment right now where we're all just like, yeah, Formula One's coming to Las Vegas, baby. Like, <laughs> what? I'm used to waking up at 6 a.m., Half of the year, just to watch piddly races in Europe. Ooh, look at them go, just alone in my house. And now this, it's incredible. Uh, well, I, I, I can tell you're excited. I have not watched much Formula One in my life, but from how you have explained it to me in the past, it does seem like a, a really interesting sport, a very unique race. And, and on top of all of this, there is also a serious economic component to this. You and I sat down with Brian Gordon of Applied Analysis, that's a data analytics firm in Las Vegas, to hear more about the growing market for Formula One here in the U.S. F1 certainly has some experience in the Texas area. They have an upcoming event in Miami next month, and so they have a pretty good handle on their customer base and the amount of visitation that it generates here in the U.S. Clearly, they've got a wide reach in other markets around the world where they have been able to measure how many folks attend their events. On any given weekend in Las Vegas, we we have 300,000 plus people in the market already. And so we need to keep that in mind. But the reality is events like this, they bring a new customer to the market. They have a huge international following. So we'll bring a lot of folks from outside of the country that will generate demand here in the local market. I also got the chance to talk to Governor Steve Sisolak about his thoughts on the race coming to Las Vegas. They are investing a lot of money into Las Vegas to make this happen. They're convinced that we're a good market. But I am convinced that this one will be a marquee event for Formula One. I mean, nobody puts on a show like Las Vegas does. And as it relates to saturating, you know, there's times where we have a, you could have a major fight the same weekend that we've got Formula One and, and the NFL. I mean, there's so much going on in Las Vegas. We have venues that are currently in existence. We've got more on the drawing board or plan to be built that can house some of these type of events, whether they're a, a basketball game, a, a concert, those sort of things, a neutral site football game, and, and that's going to be uh, continued to expand upon. 
So this race is happening on the Las Vegas Strip. The Strip is the actual racetrack. I'm beyond thrilled to be with all of you tonight in the celebration and special announcement that Formula One racing is coming to Las Vegas. It will be on these legendary streets right below where we're standing, where those engines will rev, the checkered flag will wave, and Las Vegas will get set to play host for a brand new spectacle. The United States is a massive focus for us, there's no doubt about it. And we are seeing the fans here growing all the time. And uh, the race will be on the street, on the street of the city, and will be a Saturday night race. We are looking down at one of the most iconic, famous streets in the world. I can't wait to see this street with Formula One cars traveling 200 miles per hour down this Las Vegas Strip. It's absolutely amazing. We are anticipating 170,000 visitors to town to watch this race. They will accommodate 400,000 room nights, which is absolutely amazing. And the economic, the direct economic impact is approaching a half of a billion dollars, and the indirect impact will be over a billion dollars by the time we're done. It's also happening at night, which is Rare for a Grand Prix, only a handful happen a night each year, and even then, usually only in the Middle East or Southeast Asia because of weather concerns. Rarely do these races also take place directly in the middle of a city like this. Our reporter Howard Stutz and I sat down to chat a little bit about the logistics of the actual track. A good chunk of it is going to race from Sands Avenue straight down to Harmon Avenue, and then they'll make the turn. I mean, it's like 14 different turns on this track, but the big straightaway is going to be the strip. And you have some of the most iconic properties, all the properties that are on, that align along are going to be in front of this race, offering prime viewership for their customers. Think about it, the Cosmopolitan has all those balconies that will overlook this race. I think that's that is really part of the big attention to it. They're also going to it's going to race around. It's going to be, you look at the track, the way they have it configured right now, it's going to go around the sphere. In some manner, you know, so the sphere will be played into this. A lot of different properties will have exposure because of this race. And here's Governor Sisolak again. This is going down the strip. I mean, at night. So when you can imagine the look that you're going to get out of this when you see those cars going 200 miles an hour down Las Vegas Boulevard with the marquees in the background and those lights. I predict this will be the iconic race for Formula One. I really believe that. We also wanted to know what this is going to mean for tourism in Las Vegas. Uh, the race is happening uh, in November of 2023, and they also have to shut down the strip for this race. So here's Howard talking more about that. Well, part of the idea is in keeping trying to minimize the shutdown is it will shut down for seven hours a day. Now, there's going to be a lot of disruption as they set up for the race because you have to bring in the barriers, all the safety barriers and equipment. The pedestrian overpasses on the strip that are part of the race will be shut down. They won't, you won't be able to use those pedestrian overpasses for safety reasons, obviously. I think they're still trying to figure out some of the logistics in terms of utilizing the big center islands on the strip, how they're going to, how they're going to utilize the race going down the strip. So those are all those logistics are being worked up. Brian with Applied Analysis also had this to say about the timing of the event. They're looking at scheduling this event during a fairly low tourism season, if you will, during the November timeframe of the year, which will help to boost some of the shortcomings in a relatively soft schedule that's typically here during that time frame. So it seems to be a positive, not only for Formula One, but really provides an opportunity for Las Vegas to leverage their brand here locally. 
we wanted to know what an event like this means for the market in Las Vegas and what turnout even looks like for a street race on one of the busiest and highest traffic five miles of road in Nevada and, frankly, in the United States. Even an average Formula One Grand Prix can see spectator numbers in excess of 150,000 people. And some races could even host more than 400,000 people over the entire weekend. To say nothing of the hundreds or thousands more people in team personnel, circuit support staff, and more. Um, So, Jacob, you mentioned this happens over a weekend. So is it more than one day? Um, Does the Grand Prix happen over a couple days, or how does that work? That's right. It's three whole days, usually, because for Formula One specifically, you've got two practice sessions on one day, a practice session on qualifying the next, then the race, plus a couple other support races, usually Formula Two. Maybe something else is thrown in there in the mix. They like to use the space they have. Yeah, and so here's Brian again talking about how, you know, what that turnout is going to look like. Look, this is a huge deal. I mean, the, the fact that we were able to land a, an event of this caliber and of this scale is pretty impressive. I mean, this is an international brand that has a far reach, and I think it's having a, a greater impact here in the United States, particularly as some of their other media and efforts that they've been pushing forward has grabbed the attention of Americans. So I think it's a it's a great thing for the U.S., but I think it's an even better and more important element of what we have going on here in Southern Nevada specifically. If you're here that weekend of the race, you're here because of Formula One. That's really going to be the main reason people are going to be here. It's not going to be the, hey, let's just go to Vegas for the weekend crowd. I also asked about the current makeup for the market for an event like this in Las Vegas, which saw a huge comeback from the economic devastation that hit the city in early 2020 as a result of the pandemic. The last two years have been a little bit unique. Today, we've got primarily a leisure traveler coming to Las Vegas. We haven't seen convention-related travel come back to its pre-pandemic levels, which was a significant share of the overall visitation. About 16% of visitors were convention travelers. We haven't seen all of that international travel come back yet. They typically account for about 14% of all visitors. So It's a different dynamic right now, and we've seen a heavy slant towards special event attendees that are coming for concerts and sporting events and all of the things that you're seeing in these major venues, and that's been driving all of the demand uh, throughout the pandemic and the recovery, and that's what we've been seeing. But look, over the long-term horizon, if we sort of look back at the trends, Las Vegas is diversifying its economy, but it's also diversifying its tourism industry. We have seen a shift, right, that gaming revenues, while they still have been growing, are a smaller piece of the pie. People are coming for the great restaurants. Uh, They're coming for retail shopping opportunities. All of these venues up and down the Las Vegas Boulevard, they're coming for entertainment, the shows and the residencies that you hear about. So, Jacob, I'm not much of a sports guy uh, aside from the San Francisco Giants. Sorry, Las Vegas Dodgers fans. But seeing how Vegas has really changed from a place that was once known pretty much exclusively for gambling to diversifying its offerings to things like conventions, outdoor recreation, shows and concerts. And of course, the big one is now sports. It's, it's really fascinating to me. Yeah, Vegas is a sports town now, especially with now one of the biggest motorsports coming to the city. This is 
on par with or potentially greater than a Super Bowl, if you want to think about it that way. Now, this is a multi-day event as opposed to a single-day event, and so that uh, also adds to the volume of visitors that are potentially here. But I think the goal was probably just to focus on how do we increase overall demand for Las Vegas and bring as many incremental visitors into the market and generate significant premiums and activate the entire city around a single event. And I think they've hit the nail on the head. One of the reasons that's been suggested for the success of major sports here in Las Vegas is that while there are a significant number of fans located inside the metro area, more than 2.5 million people, there's also a huge market for out-of-state fans. Yeah, no other city really compares to Vegas in that way as a tourism destination, and people from out of the state, sometimes out of the country even, are coming to see their teams play. Um, You can see that with the Mexico versus U.S. soccer match that happened at Allegiant Stadium earlier this year. And they're staying the weekend to see the rest of what Vegas has to offer as well. The Vegas Golden Knights have done tremendous in terms of Uh, not only their performance over the last five years, but their ability to bring in out-of-town visitors. If you're a fan of the Detroit Red Wings and they're playing in Las Vegas, this is probably one of the markets you would go watch your team. All right, Jacob, so we're going to have a Formula One race here in uh, 2023. That's right. And it's going to be the third American Formula One race that year. Uh, Truly a staggering number considering the number of Americans who were into Formula One just five years ago, which I'll tell you right now, not as many as it is today. You were you were a sports hipster. That's right. I was in the Formula One in the United States before <laughs> it was cool. So, yeah, so there's this big economic impact and kind of an interesting change in culture to a, a, a European sport coming to Las Vegas. And frankly, the interest in Las Vegas specifically is already sky high. Uh, Howard uh, reported this week, and you can read more on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, that already hotels are getting calls from lots and lots of people about when they can book rooms for that weekend. And it's funny because that weekend doesn't even exist right now, and these hotels don't book rooms more than a year out in advance. Yeah, and the NFL draft is coming to Vegas this year. The Super Bowl will be in the city in a few years. Um, so the, the sports landscape there is changing. We'll be reporting on it. And as always, you can find our reporting on the NevadaIndependent.com. In the past school year, there has been a dramatic increase in violence in schools in Clark County. Fights between students and violence towards teachers have plagued the district. Reporter Rocio Hernandez has attended recent press conferences and a protest related to all this, and Joey sat down with her to talk about the issue and how the school district is trying to address student and staff concerns. Fights are sadly a typical part of school life. But what we've heard from the Clark County School District this academic year is that the level of violence seen on their campuses has grown. Some think it's a result of the trauma and isolation that students experienced during the pandemic, especially because they couldn't go to school in person. Others say it's due to the lack of mental health resources within Clark County schools and the community at large, as well as a shortage of staff across the district. But now that we are getting closer to the end of the school year, 
The issue has gotten so bad that the district held two press conferences about this topic in a two-week time span. The most recent press conference took place after a brutal attack on an El Dorado high school teacher, allegedly by a student. The teacher, who has not been identified, is recovering with family after being hospitalized. The student is facing more than a dozen charges, including attempted murder and sexual assault. So I'm here with education reporter Rocio Hernandez, who attended the press conferences and has been reporting on this rise in school violence. So to start out, Rocio, how has the incident at El Dorado High School impacted the district? Yeah, well, the attack was a really sad event, and I think it created a ripple effect across the district. So students and teachers, a lot of them are really on edge right now. And during a recent protest, we heard from one teacher Jamie Tardinsky of Canyon Springs High School, who said many of their colleagues are worried that something like this could happen to them and their students are afraid to come to school because they no longer feel it's a safe place for them. And our students, our staff, we all deserve better. Our campuses are not combat zones. And right now, it feels like I wake up to go to a war I did not sign up for. I went to school to become a teacher. I didn't get drafted as a soldier. But Clark County School District Police Chief Mike Blackeye is expecting the violent activity to increase after students return to school from spring break on Tuesday, April 19th, and carry on through the remainder of the academic year. Yeah, and, and so what kind of steps is the school district looking to take uh, to address this issue of violence? Yeah, so the district held two press conferences recently to talk about what actions they're looking to take to address all of these issues. So one thing Superintendent Jesus Jara announced in March was that the district would recommend expulsions for fights that cause significant campus disruptions. And the students who are recommended for expulsions could be referred to alternative schooling options, such as the Nevada Learning Academy, that's the district's online public secondary school. And at the press conference that the district had last week, JAR discussed efforts to improve security, such as partnering with law enforcement agencies to increase police presence on campuses through the end of the school year. He also talked about upgrading security cameras, equipping teachers with some sort of panic button that could connect them quickly to administrators and first responders. But at the recent press conference, JAR was asked why the district didn't do any of these efforts before the teacher was attacked and hospitalized. Why did it come into this horrific event? This is something that um, I'm going to tell you as a superintendent. Um, I'm going to do what I need to do to protect our educators and our students, and I'm taking the actions now. So what's been the reaction of the Clark County staff, students, uh, and parents on the actions? So, so far, what I've been hearing is mixed reactions from the community. Some people see these efforts as just a band-aid to cover up the school violence issue, and they say it doesn't go far enough. And last week, concerned teachers, students, parents held a protest in front of the district's admin building on their spring break to demand safety improvements. We can't wait. We can't wait. We can't wait. And I was able to talk to a couple of parents, teachers, and students at the protest to get their thoughts. Northwest Career and Technical Academy teacher Madeline Sweet was against the idea of having more police on campuses. Having police on campus means there's guns on campus. You're good, you're good. You know, there's tasers on campus. So it's just, I feel like violence on violence isn't going to solve the problem. 
And then others like Shadow Ridge High School teacher Kayla Williams said they want to see more proactiveness and discipline. We need more people on site. We need more help. We need more um, money for safety. We need more discipline. The kids have learned this system this year and they know that they can get away with everything. And we need more. Go back to the zero tolerance because they're providing them so much grace that it's putting us in danger. So so kind of zooming out here a little bit, during previous legislative sessions, there was a lot of talk about restorative justice being adopted in schools. Does that play any role in all of this? Well, that's certainly one thing that the Clark County Education Association, the bargaining unit for the district's licensed educators, is pointing at. To give you a little backstory, in 2019, Nevada passed AB 168, which aims to provide an alternative consequences for student misconduct rather than expulsion as part of an effort to reduce the school-to-prison pipeline. Education Association President Marie Nysis said at a recent press conference that the law prevents the district from swiftly expelling students for violent behavior or battery that causes bodily injury. Instead, the law requires that schools provide a plan of action based on restorative justice before expelling a student and prohibit students ages 10 and younger from being permanently expelled. But the law does have some exemptions, and district officials say restorative justice rules don't apply in extreme cases like the one that we saw at El Dorado. But at a recent press conference, NYSIS called on lawmakers and Governor Sisolak to review this law and make changes. So I expect we'll hear more about restorative justice and how it's working in future discussions. And so when we're looking at this issue of violence in schools, you know, what's what's next? What should our audience be looking for as the district looks to tackle this problem? So we're nearing the end of the school year, but like I mentioned earlier, CCSD police expect that the violent activities will continue. And they say that that an increase of violence is typical for around the end of the school year. And they'll be bringing in that law enforcement presence to try to get ahead of that. As far as teachers and community members, they have another protest planned for April 28th. That's before the district's next school board meeting. So we'll be following up with this issue and continue to track what's being done about it. All right. Well, and you can find all of your reporting for all of that on the NevadaIndependent.com. Rocio, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nevada wants to be at the front of a line of states that help decide the Democratic presidential nominee every four years. Getting a better spot could help Nevada play a bigger role in the trajectory of the presidential nominating contest and get more direct attention from candidates. Humberto Sanchez breaks down what that campaign looks like. Well, I'm here with our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, and we are talking about Nevada moving up in the primary election to potentially be the first state. But before we get into that, we haven't talked in a a, a few weeks, Humberto, and we always start with the weather. So how is the weather in D.C. this this nice April afternoon? It's it's delightful. It's going to be like actually hot today. It's going to be like 77 this afternoon. I'm very jealous here in Reno. It's been like a, like 55 and sunny. It's very deceiving. Uh, you look outside and you think you can go out there, but it's it's a little windy. It's a little chilly. I've heard Vegas is probably in the 80s today. So you guys all have better weather than me today. <laughs> but yeah, so let's start with let's, let's start with talking about the the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, and they are the ones who are actually considering Nevada for being the first primary state. 
That's right. The the DNC has decided to look at its procedures at the presidential primary contest in the calendar leading up to the convention and choosing a a primary candidate. The DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee approved a plan, actually, that would allow up to five states to hold early presidential contests. So instead of Iowa going first, the people of Nevada want Nevada to go first. Why why does that matter? (laughs) For those people who aren't who aren't in 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 the know, who cares? (laughs) So the the Democratic Party has been looking at at itself lately. And right now, currently, Iowa goes first, New Hampshire, then Nevada, actually, and then South Carolina. They they want the first state to actually reflect what the country looks like. So what they did with this plan is essentially it's a framework for how to decide what five states would go. It's up to five states. It could be fewer than that. They think that Iowa and New Hampshire don't reflect the nation as a whole in terms of the population. Places like Nevada and South Carolina are more racially and ethnically diverse, which is one of the factors that they'll look at as they go through this process, which could give Nevada a leg up. As I said, they're already third, and this could help them improve their place. As you recall, like South Carolina was the turning point for Senator Joe Biden. He came in second in Nevada, which pretty much launched him to South Carolina, and then he went on from there. So the DNC in its framework for what they want states to kind of reflect is it wants it to be diverse. It wants it to be a competitive state that would help win a general election. And it wants it to have the wherewithal to hold a fair and transparent primary. And in the last Nevada legislative session, we passed a bill that would move us up as well. Uh, How is that factoring into all of this? So that's basically a signal that Nevada is positioning itself to, to make a run at this. And right now we have a group of former Harry Reid staffers, including Rebecca Lamb, who is Reid's former longtime political director. They have launched an effort to, to make the case for Nevada. Recently, according to NBC News, uh, sent the delegation, including Governor Sisolak, sent a letter to each member of the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee making the case. The group, including Rebecca Lamb, has put together a glossy brochure also making the case. So we're, we're getting uh, our ducks in a row to do this. And, and it's it's fitting that they're all Reed staffers because uh, Senator Reed helped make Nevada third in the, in the nation, first in the West, as they like to say it. In, in 2006, he led that effort to change the calendar. And this would continue his legacy to make it first. He also advocated for that as well on, on the basis of the Nevada being diverse, Nevada having a rural and urban population and being more reflective of the overall population of the United States. If Nevada was first, that benefits the state. How does that, how does that work? Well, it gives the state a bigger say in terms of who's president. Nevada would set the tone for the nominating process each time it goes first. It also brings a lot of attention to the state. And if you look right now, Nevada's third, but Iowa and New Hampshire, that that really has become a part of their identity. I know that included in its I think it included in its constitution that it has to hold a caucus, which which actually is problematic for Iowa. They'll have to change that if they want to do this because the DNC wants to move to primaries. And, and New Hampshire also is is a part of its identity is that it goes second every time. And so Nevada would get this attention. It would play an even greater role in selecting who the Democratic nominee is. What is the Republican National Committee, the RNC, saying about kind of all this? It's it's difficult to say. They they I've talked to Mark Amaday about it, and he said he doesn't think it's a great idea. He thinks there's more consistency and and safety in keeping things as they are. I know that the Republican Party of Nevada also takes the same approach that they they they're not for this. And also the RNC has moved a bit further to the right, so that they're actually in the process of withdrawing from an agreement to cooperate with debates. They they're planning not to participate in any debates in the next cycle. So. 
they they are marching to their own drummer and they do, they don't trust the media as much and they they are essentially trying to limit how they choose their nominee in a way that doesn't hurt their nominee which they mm-hmm. think participating in debates with the mainstream media does so what would the process be right what for this to happen so as i said the dnc voted to approve this this plan and it's it does set off this process and so states have until may 6th to submit letters of intent they're not binding but if they want to apply if they want to apply for one of these five spots they'll have to may 6th to, to make it known to the dnc uh, rules and bylaws committee if they want to do that the applications full-on applications are due june 3rd and then states would make presentations to the dnc panel uh, between june 22nd and june 26th and then that the panel will decide which states can hold co- uh, contests by july 8th and 9th there's a meetings then all this is very tentative it's a committee that can change its mind at any given point and, and I'll redo the schedule. But as of the last meeting that we that we covered, that's the plan so far. And then one other thing is the DNC uh, convention could potentially happen in Las Vegas. It's between Las Vegas and Chicago, I believe, right? That's right. They're, Las Vegas is trying to make a, a play to try to get that convention. And uh, But apparently th- that's that effort is taking a backseat to this at the moment. Right now, most of the powers that be in Nevada, the political powers that be in, in the Democratic Party are focusing on trying to get the, the state to be first in the nation. But that could ultimately end up helping them maybe get the convention. We'll see. All right, Humberto. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today and breaking this all down for us. Sure thing, man. Anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Brian Gordon, Governor Steve Sisolak, Howard Stutz, Rocio Hernandez, and Humberto Sanchez for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, pictures of your favorite dairy-free coffee alternatives, or whatever else is on your mind at joey at com or jacob at com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Oh, Joey, what is this? No, (laughs) (laughs) Joey, no. That's the blooper. All right.